Hey guys, and welcome to today's episode of Giving the Beans. Now, today's guest is feeling a little bit shy about coming on. He's not too confident speaking of that, so we'll just give him a chance. It's the one and only Ali Birch. How are we doing? Good, mate. How are you? I can't complain. A uh, little bit. I was going to say I'm all good, but the day's got a little bit worse having seen you on camera. Uh, but <laughs> hopefully it won't be for very long. So, Listen, it's been a while since you came on the podcast. Um, why don't you tell everyone what's sort of been going on with you, uh, update on your journey, etc., etc. So last time I was on the podcast, I believe it was like when I just started dieting last year, I think. It was a while ago anyway. Yeah. Um, so from there, obviously, I've now transitioned into a gaining phase. I've been working with Cal as well. So I think from the last time I was on, I am up eight kilos something like that um so it's been a pretty productive phase obviously everything else has just been covid related because stuff's still slow and steady but um going pretty well all around strongest i've been calories are in a good place last time i was at this weight i looked like a potato this time i am still holding on to an ab so not too bad progress is going well yeah i'd say i'd say you know it's the strongest i've ever seen you and like your hack squat the other day, that was like what four 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 plates in a biscuit. Like yeah. on that machine, it's like for those of you listening, it's like a Watson hack squats. It's fucking heavy, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it was um, our last episode was about it's about diabetes, and I'm sure that was that was pre lockdown. I think we did it. Um, okay. If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see Alice just drunk uh, with a metal straw because he copied me <laughs> uh, right but anyway we uh, we better get into today's episode um which is mostly uh, a q a from the group chat isn't it yeah yeah so i think how, how we should probably work it is i'll rattle off the questions and then one of them you say you give your thoughts first and i'll chip in and then the next one kind of vice versa and whatnot and then that should there's there's a bunch of questions to get through um, and that should sort of take us up to the, the, the sort of time, yeah? Yep, yep. So I, I guess this one, you go first. Um, if we were talking about how, to, like this is from a beginner in regards to sort of choosing their shows, their federations, um, sort of any sort of helpful advice you'd give. What I'd say is probably, why don't you answer that not related to the current scenario in COVID and then... Mm-hmm also related to the current scenario as well. Okay, sweet. So obviously when you're looking at shows, I would say if you're a first timer, it's the first time you've done it, what you will find with some people is there might be certain shows that stand out to you. Now, you've got to remember that, and for anyone listening, I am not saying any federation is better than other federations. They just have different sort of looks they're going to go for. Um, so, for example, Two Bros tends to have a little bit of a leaner physique. So if you're a first-timer, that's probably not going to be your bread and butter, so to speak. Um, there are a lot of federations now. There's plenty more coming through. Um, what I would say to do is, obviously, normally you'll have a coach. Who's asked this does have a coach. Look at the um, previous year. Look at who competed. Look at what the looks like. And then just match that to how you look. Obviously, I know that's hard when you're in a position where you're not like stage lean, but it still should be easy enough to break down. Um, normally with first timers, Vaughn's the same as me, we'll probably look for UQUP um, will be a big one. Um, there's a few other federations like that. But I think as well, if it is your first year competing and you have looked at stuff and there is somewhere you really want to compete and you're obviously aware that first time competitors probably are not going to win, then it's okay to do that as well. It's just that you might not match what they look for in their category. Um, I would also say when you're doing that, look for a couple of different federations and try and have them grouped together around about the same time. So don't have one show here and then 10 weeks later another show because that's going to be really difficult. But try and have um, a couple of different federations to do because what will probably happen the first time you do it is you'll compete in, say, three federations. You'll enjoy the setup of one a lot more, you'll enjoy the way it runs, you'll just enjoy it, then you know for the next time you compete, that's where you want to be. Um, Obviously, we know that because COVID, shows are kind of getting moved around. Um, For example, UQUP have pushed all their shows back till the end of the year, 
Um, there will be shows running throughout, though. You've just got to obviously be aware that until we are kind of out of the lockdown, shows may keep getting pushed back. So that's the way you would set it up when COVID's going. When it's not, it would just be a case of looking to have shows sim- like relatively close together um, and also making sure you've got enough time to get ready for them. Yeah. I think as well, like, another thing to point out is that if you're a first-timer, maybe picking a federation that has a first-time category, yeah, yeah. you know, um, would be a good shout, whether that's, you've got PCA first-timers, um, a lot of the federations will do, like, a beginner's bikini or a novice bikini, um, junior bikini, whatever it is. If you're, you know, under the age of, sort of, I think it's 21 or 23, um, you know, you, you're put in a younger category group. So have an opportunity to, I think, do that as your first time and maybe more beneficial than going maybe going against girls that you know they've maybe been competing for two or three seasons and been bodybuilding for four or five six years or whatever it is um because it can be kind of disheartening let's say if someone picks a show and let's say it was a pretty high high standard two bros regional and they just did the open eye class and it's their first time and they, you know they maybe get smoked that could they could then not come back to bodybuilding. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. You know what I mean. So that's probably why I think both me and you will push, kind of push more. Say right, our main one might be you know this this sort of beginners class. Then thereafter we'll sort of dip our toes in, you know, the, maybe the open night class or maybe a, a federation where we know girls are maybe going to be more a bit more of a higher standard. You could say, but it's not to say that the standard won't be high across the board. But yeah. For, for right now, I think that anyone that is going to compete is a diehard <laughs> this year, yeah. and it's probably going to be a fairly high standard. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah 100%. I think the first-timers, I think a lot of people get a little bit, when you speak to people about it, it's almost like they're hesitant because they're like, oh, well, I don't want to do a first-timers. But you've got to remember with this, there can be first-timers that have been training for 20 years and have just never competed. It's not like first-timers is a lower lower class it's just that they are not as experienced as being on stage so i think they especially nowadays with all how good federations are the first timers are still very good it's just a good place to start yeah i mean how i would put it right it's like if you're like dundee united football club you're not just going to like say right next week i'm going to play man city mm-hmm. <laughs> you just just probably not going to be competitive but Maybe if you went a division up, I don't really know why I made a football reference there because I watch football, but maybe <laughs> a couple of divisions lower, then it's, it's going to be more, more of a competition rather than a, than a thrashing, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is we're competing. I think this is one thing that we will all have to be aware of, and I think more people need to think about it, that it's a journey and it's not... For most people, now there are outliers to that. We've all we've had clients that go on stage the first time and they smoke it. But for the most part of people, me included, you, the first time you go on stage, it's an experience. The second time you do a bit better, the third time, it is about that building block. So as Vaughn said, if you sort of go and like say, for example, a real high level of competing and it's your first time and you get blown out the water, it's probably going to make your journey not be as long as you want it to be. So you've got to like be honest about it. Like, for example, we all know what standard we should be competing against. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think just knowing that um, you can go in a class and sort of be competitive is going to be far more enjoyable for you. Yeah, un- unless you are of the volition where you, you just want to compete once and get it done. In that sense, just do whatever fucking show you want. But how I tend to say is I will say, right, have you, like, if you're going to do, like, let's say, your main show, I, I would say do a couple before it, just because that first time, let's face it, even even you and me, the first time you step on stage, at the side of the stage, like, shiting yourself a wee bit. Now, luckily for you and me, well, for me, I don't need to wear a pair of heels. What, whatever you do in your own time is completely up to yourself. But um, <laughs> you know, if you stand side of the stage, pair of heels on, like a rabbit in the headlights, I'd say they're probably going to want to get through, like get get the cobwebs out. Not even cobwebs, just just get a get a feel for it, and then you'll you'll adjust so much me how quickly it can go on stage, and before you know it, they're like, oh my god, I want to do it all over again. So 
Second time round, a bit more confident. You probably nail it. And third time, you're like, right, call my number, call my name. So yep. that's how I'd approach yep. it. I would also say just very briefly before we go into the next question, because the person's asked, how do you know which cat, uh, federation to pick? There are some like rough breakdowns of what each federation will look for. And we won't go through it right now, but you can speak to your coach about it because there are set, certain differences. For example, in two bros on their back shot, their hair covers their back. On PCA, it doesn't work. Well, it can, but it doesn't. So there's different looks that they will go for. Some people just do not fit into a federation. doesn't matter if they get in the best condition ever. doesn't matter if they've got a good amount of muscle. They just don't fit the fit. So you do have to look into that as you go. Yeah. This kind of quite, ties quite nicely. Um, I think I should, this is the first question I asked. On uh, the thoughts of the bikini criteria evolution. So I'll go first on this one, I suppose, and then um, you can sort of chip in. So... It's been fairly evident that over time, if you, you can look as far back as sort of like early sort of 2010, 2011, um, on those sort of winners up to now. And I think that each year, what you see is just a little bit more muscle mass, a little bit better conditioning, smaller waist. And it effectively looks like bigger glutes, more defined hammies, bigger cap on the delt. And then just literally, if you look back, the waist just get small, like smaller. So... I guess the, the evolution has kind of been from a not-so-lean muscular look to a more of a lean, quite slightly muscular look. So I guess the question really asks our, our thoughts on it, and then someone asked about Team Janet versus Team... Uh, I can't pronounce her name. Is it Isa, Isha? Uh, yeah. And, like, when I look at the bikini call-outs from last year, Honestly, it is so hard to pick apart those girls. And I think that we can both sit here and look at one photograph and say, oh, yeah, she looks a bit better and she looks a bit better. But unless you're actually there, unless yeah. you're there at the show, like Joe Bennett said, the Olympia says, unless you're sort of there and you see the quarter turns, the presentation, it's just so hard to pick these girls apart. And bear in mind that, um, okay, you know, one of them won in 2019 and then to think she came fifth or sixth last year. Um, like literally when I'm, I'm, I'm looking at their side shots before this podcast um, to try and really pick them apart and I can't really pick them apart because they both got decent delts both yeah. got really, like, really defined decent glutes nice size there um, so my just thoughts are that what's tend to be happening this is maybe perhaps more related to just IFBB because this is what the question is about is that bikini girls are getting bigger and I guess it's becoming not harder, but you can't just like gone are the days where you can just say, oh, yeah, I'll try competing and just never have done bodybuilding step on stage six months later. It's now kind of like, well, you need to actually put some time into adding muscle mass, which I quite like, because like you said about the journey, it teaches them, well, teaches them about hard work and what it takes to get there. So my thoughts would be that it's not a bad thing, but I personally don't think it'll get much more muscular than this because of how like because you've got the wellness class now there's that sort of definitive that is in between and that is a more muscular sort of bikini look wellness girls are just like pretty much the thickest figure girls with softer posing but anyway that's my two cents yeah so so i've actually got the photo up now so i can have a look side by side and yeah i agree with you when it gets to the top level it's so hard to tell but you can see, like, even I've got the photo here of the top five standing beside each other, and you can see how lean they are through the glutes. They're, all of them have very tight waists. And then the quads, compared to what you were seeing maybe five, six years ago, or even five years ago, they're thicker through the lower body. Um, but it ties in with all competition standards, because if you look at men's physique in the Olympia, like Ryan Terry, really nice guy, I've met him. He was, t- like, top five but now he's just been blown out the water because he's going on stage at maybe 85 kilos and the other guys are just outmassing him. And every, as bodybuilding gets more common for the masses, I think people will get bigger. But then there's always that crossover, like there will be a point you are too big for men's physique. But I do think the, everyone's tending to be have more muscle, especially even though you look in the UK, the top two bros girls and top PCA girls in bikini, 
do have very well not very muscular, but like they've got muscular delts, glutes, hamstrings. They're they're not just turned up after, as Von said, a year and they're smashing it. Got better glutes than me and you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, these get like these girls are strong as fuck. Um and have been training for a while. And the level of conditioning that they get is like the fact that the top girls have like you could see their hammies, you could see their glutes pretty defined. That level of conditioning is arguably okay, maybe not quite the same as a male bodybuilder, but male bodybuilders just have a ton of more muscle. That's why it looks different. It's still in like an incredible feat how how lean they get. Um but yeah, I think that kind of covers that that one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. The the next ones that, that was obviously like more sort of the the female group chat side of things. The, the male group chat side of things asked there was a lot of questions. Uh, some from the same dude who asked loads. We're trying to get through as many as we can. Um, but the first one, um, I guess, this kind of relates. You've already answered it partially, but I suppose you can answer it for for guys and girls. Is um, picking what category to compete in. Um, you, you, I guess you, you go first, I'll add to it. So, in all honesty with this one, and I, I, I've had it a few times over the last year, mainly with females, actually, not with guys. I think the, uh, and I think sometimes people underestimate how much muscle they've got. So, I've had a few girls who have been like, oh, but I don't want to compete in bikini. I could do bigger than that. And I'm looking and I'm like, but when we diet you down, you'll be in bikini. Um, with With guys, it's that simple thing of, most people will start in men's physique because although the guys are a lot bigger now, it's the the class that's the lowest. You're not going to have your legs out. You don't have to be uh, doing routines as well, which makes it a little bit smoother to transition into. So that would be your first thought, but it depends on your shape. Um, are you assisted? Are you natural? Um, also, I suppose, what you feel you enjoy more um, like I know a lot of guys who just really don't like that idea of physique. So then they'll probably have to take a longer off season to try and move into our classes a bit bigger. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the main, the main start point would be physique. Um, and I think as well, as the physique guys get bigger and you see the condition they're bringing and stuff like that. Yes. I know they've not got their legs out, but it's still a very competitive thing to compete in. Yeah. hundred percent. I think also as well, would it be fair for us to say that sometimes you don't choose the category, the category chooses you. Like, how many times have you seen a physique guy and you just went, he's just a mini bodybuilder, he's just not big enough yet. And Mm -hmm. he doesn't place, maybe it's a bit down hard and it's just a case of, well, you shouldn't get down hard because you're still peeled, but the difference is you just, you're blocky, you don't have the same flow, you move like a robot, um, you're maybe not that good looking either because in men's physique you got to be good looking whereas in bodybuilding uh, you maybe perhaps don't because that's what they're judging on but um, so as I said maybe the category picks picks you versus the other way and the same with the female side of things there, there, there's probably some some girls that whose category is figure but they're like three or four years away from it who when they do bikini you just go you're not a bikini girl because half like half the half of it when it boils down to it bikini is the presentation right the look the sass the flick the, the pop you know the, the glute transition and all that and if you've not got that special ifbb then unfortunately you're probably not gonna not gonna place um so yeah like, like i would say with like men's physique so I, for, for reference it doesn't anyone doesn't know me i'm like I'm five foot seven and a half. I'm 93 kilos at the moment. When I'm lean, I'm about 81, 82. But in men's physique, I don't have that good abs. So that's a big part of it. Although my waist isn't gigantic, it's not tiny. So again, that can play into it. So then that then means even if I bring a really good condition, you're already a kind of um, limited a little bit because it needs to be that look. So the idea when uh, men's physique started, it was basically models who had board shots on, surf look. Yeah. So it's still that idea. And you have to look if you fit into that category or not. If you're someone that Vaughn said, it's quite blocky, doesn't matter how shredded you get, you don't fit into the men's physique category. So you might just have to spend time getting bigger. Yeah. A lot of people are watching this and thinking, how the hell did you two do a model looking category? <laughs> I'd maybe get away with it, but looking at you, <laughs> Ali, you look about 40 years old. 
some people, some people actually maybe don't know this. They don't actually know me and Ali were at school together. Um, and I obviously look far younger, um, much more youthful looking than he does. But yeah, same, same. Uh, was it French class or PE? PE, that was it. Yeah, that's when Ali was like kicking about in cons and being a wee, being a wee rebel. But anyway, <laughs> moving on. I think we did. You answer that? Yeah, yeah, we answered it. Yeah. Um, did I? Did I add to it? Did I? I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, you did answer. Okay. Yeah. Um, this this one, I don't know if it's aimed at us or if it's aimed at uh, what our opinion is. It says, decision to start using steroids. So I'm gonna, I'll answer it in two ways. Number one, why did I start using Like, why was my decision? Just that my aesthetic goals were probably far greater than what I thought I could attain naturally. And I wanted to, to see how, you know, I wanted to attain those goals. At the same time, I was probably influenced by those around me. And uh, I, I worked in the, you know, on the doors as such. Um, and yeah, it was sort of quite just spoken about quite a lot. Saw some of the progress that guys made on it. Didn't know I have a fucking clue about it when I started it. Um, did it all wrong. Uh, more likely, ran dosages that were silly uh, for how you know not muscular I was. Um, and yeah, it would, at the time there was no like oh, I'm taking this because I want to compete. It was like I'm taking this because I yeah I just had aesthetic goals. I was like, I want to feel a little bit superhuman uh, <laughs> and have that sort of suit of armour. Um, so I guess that would be kind of why I started a while back now. Um, I could then answer it and say, why did I decide to do it properly? And that's just simply, again, because just a lack of fulfilment of why I know I would probably attain naturally, because naturally I'm about the, the size of a, a lamppost um, and <laughs> I find it very hard to add muscle. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just, I guess if I was to be quite derogatory, I would say that it's, I, I feel kind of better when I'm on uh, than when I would, if I would come completely off. What, what would you say? So I, I had like previously taken, like not taken steroids, but taken things, clean, anabars, stupid things like that. When I was like training, going to Ibiza, all that crap. Then I actually took kind of a break from coaching. I was still training, but I went to Australia for a year. And when I came back, we started training again. I kind of just fell back in love with bodybuilding. And then that's when I kind of knew that, because I was actually thinking of stopping uh, coaching, but then I then kind of fell back in love with that, knew I wanted to coach. And I think kind of what Vaughn says, like there's no right or wrong with it, really. Your decisions are your decisions. And like we'll all do stuff that could be quote unquote seen as unhealthy. So I started doing it, um, just because I wanted to progress my physique and uh, like similar to Vaughn, my natural shape, like if you've seen my photo on Instagram the other day, I think I started, when I started training, I was about 67 kilos or something. So I am by, I am by no means genetically elite. Um, and, and it was just one of those factors, the surrounding, the people surrounding me as well. I would say though, thankfully, because I started a bit later, uh, Vaughn actually helped me with my cycle, but Vaughn was getting coached by people who were very good with that. So I've always been on a very, health conscious way of doing it so I've always looked after the blood like my blood work I've not done it in like a mad way so the, the main reasons for me is just because at the end of the day I will be bodybuilding in some aspect for probably my entire life yeah if you're someone who's not going to do that it's probably a bit different yeah it's, it's always going to be it's person dependent down to individual and if a client ever asked me my opinion of should do I think they should or not I don't answer it I always just say that's your decision. If you'd like to, we can chat about it. If you want more, you know, more knowledge on it, yeah, we can chat about it. But you know, you shouldn't have someone make that decision for you, um, because let's face it, you know, I probably jumped on too soon. But at the same time, would I go back and change it on? Absolutely fucking not. No, not a chance. Um, the the other fact that I would say as well, and one thing that me and Vaughn definitely weren't doing, because people ask this a lot, and I think. If you are not nailing everything else you're doing, don't even think oh. about it. So what I mean is people ask a lot, like, oh, oh, but if I do this, if I start taking this, I'll be that. And I'm like, but your training is not consistent. You're not progressively overloading, getting stronger. Your nutrition's all over the shop. Your recovery's not good. Mine was probably like that when I started. If you can nail all those factors first, because remember, they are far more important than any external thing you're taking because they need to be done. So I would nail all that stuff first. If you can do that for a year, 
you're going to make progress anyway. Probably worth it. If you can't stick to a diet and you start taking gear, you're not going to get sure of the anyway. Yeah. I think that um, one of the other reasons why I started, I was probably just impatient back in the day. I was like, oh, fuck, gear gets you huge, so I'm just going to take a bit of gear. When actually it's about everything else as well. Um, I'd say we're just predispositioned to humans to want everything now. You know, we order something off Amazon instead of the next day like that. So if if there's like a, if, if you could say to someone, listen, by the way, if you were to go assisted, we could probably add 20 kilos onto your frame in a year. They're probably going to go, yeah, opposed to, yeah, we can maybe add on, you know, let's say six, seven, eight. There's, there's, a bit, there's a big sort of difference between the two. But yeah, I think that probably answers that one enough because uh, we could literally talk all, all day about that. Um, yeah. There's another two questions about how steroids actually work. That's episode six. So I would just go back to that and then listen to the one after with Dr. Dean, episode seven. Uh, Incidentally, GH, honestly, we're not going to get into that today because it's complicated and I would rather that I got on someone like Dr. Dean, Joe Jeffries to chat about it. But what I do is just direct you to um, one, of, one of the Muscle Mentors podcasts. Listen to Joe Jeffries. We'll get him on. We'll chat about it. Um, but it's a really, really wicked compound. Um, this one, this will take two seconds. Is there such a thing as vitamin timing for optimum health benefits? I'll let you answer that, Ali. No. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's the conclusion there. I don't yeah. know. I don't know where someone's got that from. Um, I, so I suppose if they were looking at, I suppose if they're meaning supplementation rather than vitamins, you could obviously you know that if you're taking supplements for sleep and you're taking them first thing in the morning, it's not going to help when you go to bed. Yeah. Or it will. It could slow you down during the day, but not I, really. Not. I think maybe the person's meant to say supplements and they put yeah. vitamins because vitamins, as we know, like uh, some people may argue, don't take like don't take vitamin c close to a workout had a client ask me that um not too long ago because they'd heard on a podcast and they went on the podcast and then sort of heard the the sound bite looked at the research again i was like don't fucking worry about it you're still you're still going to be able to progress your your lifts no problem I, i think that in the long list of everything worrying about when you take your vitamins is probably at yeah. the, the, the bottom of that list. So I'd, I'd say we're probably in agreement on that question, yeah? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Right, this one it can be a, it's a little bit mouthy. I'm going to try and answer it, because I'll answer it in a, try and answer it in a logical way. You can answer it in the way that you told me you were going to answer it. Um, alterations on training based on gender differences. And then they, they kind of go into asking about muscle fiber types, how program for different muscle fiber types, and then hormones. Um, so number one, alterations on training based on gender. Well, as far as I can remember, not many females want a jacked chest, you know? So so when it, unless maybe perhaps they're a figure girl, right? But for, for that part of their bikini girl, they're not gonna train as much chest as me and Ali will, because let's face it, we want to get as, as jacked as we can. In, in general, women can recover quicker than us guys, um, primarily due to the anti-catabolic nature uh, of estrogen. Um, estrogen is actually fairly anabolic. Um, but what it's just going to do is not allow them to break down quite as much. So whereas us guys who, well, assisted guys who are on a lot of gear, um, we elicit a lot of breakdown and it takes a bit, bit more recovery. So me and Ali will program lower body for females maybe three times a week. Whereas I know for sure if me and Ali tried to train legs three times a week, nah, we'd be we'd be in hospital just simply because we couldn't recover. Um, I mean, I'm still still pretty sore from Tuesday's session. This is now Thursday, um, and I know I'm still going to be a bit sore tomorrow. Whereas I, I don't know. I'll ask you, how many times have you? You know, you've maybe trained with a female, you've seen a female client smash their legs on a Monday, and then by the Wednesday, they're absolutely fine. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely fine yeah. And, and ready to go again. Um, so in regards to, to those sort of training differences, I think that females' volume is always going to be so much higher. They'll, they'll often be able to do two sets to our three, 
Um, sorry, three sets to our two, or two sets to our one, or whatever it is. Anytime me and Ali have trained with Clara, she tends to kick her ass and does more sets whilst we're still lying on the floor. Um, they'll, they'll be able to do more sets across the week. There, there's so much we could kind of get into. Um, in regards to more in-depth about muscle fiber type. Now, unless you do, a, you know, were to do a test to identify that, you're not going to know. The only way you're kind of going to know is if someone becomes, like they've worked with you a while and they're, they're just, they're just, it's just hard for them to add tissue. I would then just say they're genetically predispositioned to, to find it difficult. You can maybe argue they'd be more towards like type like type two uh, type one instead of type two B that we that we we want that fast twitch. But I think that's way too in depth to be looking at in regards to programming. What do you think? So obviously you've covered it with the, like you you shouldn't be uh, programming for males and females the same exact way because we are not the same. You say it a lot females are not small male bodybuilders, but the I think when you start to look too far down the rabbit hole, it becomes or it can become, excuse Leo, it can become diminishing for people's results. So what I mean by that is if you've got someone who trains well, they're growing, they move well, and then you start to go into some real technical like stuff and start to get this one percent of each movement, a lot of the time they will stop enjoying it as much, therefore they're not going to progress. So we know if people are lifting well, getting stronger, and they're in good positions, you're, you're pretty much set. Don't, unless you're really interested in it, but it's just not going to be that applicable. So I'm sure you're the same as me. I've got some people who compete who look amazing. They don't really care too much about all the nuances of training. They just want to literally go in, beat their logbook, and know how to improve their movements. Yeah. Nuances. A, yeah, I don't know if that's the right word there, is, but it's a, a big, big word for a for a Thursday afternoon. It's because Robin's wrote down all my notes for me learning. There's a lot of big words in it. Nice. <laughs> Hats off to Robin. Um, so yeah, I think that they also ask about hormone morphology and how that affects movement and performance of different genders. I think it, it kind of re- like is a mouthy question, but it links very much into the, the next one. And I guess what we're going to probably try and do is summarise kind of these two questions in one. And, and I can go first, don't worry. Now, he says, the, what they're asking is the effects of estrogen testosterone with effect, with effect to upper um, and lower body training. Now, I would just label that as training as a whole, right? And I think that if you are looking at females you cannot just look at estrogen and estrogen alone because as we will be learning all about in a couple of weeks when I do that uh, menstrual cycle and physique development PowerPoint, um, estrogen and progesterone have almost the opposite effects on um, on physiology when it comes to sort of muscle growth, nutrient partitioning, et cetera, et cetera. So what I would say is that when it comes to females, you could 100% slightly adapt their training based on where they're at in their menstrual cycle. And that might be that when they're in the sort of follicular phase, that first part, which starts with menses, um, they're probably going to be able to handle higher loads, more sort of a ro- like high-intensity aerobic work. There might be a, a big sort of drive, internal drive to, for, to put more weight on the bar for progress. And then as they start to kind of go into that late luteal phase where progesterone takes on progesterone's catabolic in nature right so it has the complete opposite effect of of estrogen and that's where training potentially could switch to perhaps more of a focus of not not maintenance but not quite as, as high intensity as that first one um personally though uh, although i see the physiology and understand the difference in regards to like you know in their second uh, part of their their cycle they are perhaps not as sensitive to insulin, they don't perhaps utilize carbs quite as well, yada, yada. Uh, I wouldn't change training because you'll be the same thing. 99% of the time we are working, you know, 
towards a maybe perhaps a dieting, like when we're in a dieting phase and a goal, we cannot take our foot off the gas there. Then you can also argue when we're gaining, well, you have the you have the food and you've usually got the the capabilities to continue press. I don't know any female, okay, maybe this bar few that is messaging me saying, hey Vaughn, you know, I wasn't able to train today because my cycle, unless they were experiencing, you know, cramps when they were a couple of days before the cycle or on the period or whatever. And um, so for the most part, I think that although we have sort of anecdotal evidence and science, we've also got what works in practice. So perf- just as a as a supposed to answer the question, performance may dip a little bit in the week before perhaps a, um, a female's cycle. Um, they may be at their absolute strongest during ovulation because they get a small spike, spike in testosterone, um, which is very, very, very small in comparison to the likes of me and you, Ali. Um, so their mood will also change as well. Uh, they might have emotional instability in that second phase that's a rather fancy way to put it, rather than say, oh, they maybe feel maybe going to be a bit batshit crazy in that second phase. Um, that, so I, I would say that probably answers, I hope that answers the female side of things. Um, I guess you can then chip into that and then add to, te- I mean, the guy's asking about testosterone in regards to to training, but for, for you, me, no, that's not going to change. No, exactly. What I would also say with the females is it's a really risky tactic to auto-regulate someone's training performance before it happens. So if you're like to a girl who's competing, right, in three weeks, we're going to pull your volume right down. You're going to do this, you're going to do that. And they get to that week and they go, I feel fine and I can push. And you're like, yeah, yeah, but physiology tells me that you should be doing this. It's not really going to be that effective. I think it's, don't get me wrong, some people will message you and say, oh, I was done a couple of lifts here, but I know why, because where my cycle is. But I, I wouldn't try and auto-regulate it, because everyone's different. Um, with guys, yeah, they're not, the training performance is not going to be affected. Yeah. It's just going to be consistent. Obviously, other factors will affect training, but it's just going to be consistent across the, the board. I think, I mean, obviously, you and me, we control our testosterone levels. Now, if you were a natural male... I mean, your levels should still technically be consistent unless you have some sort of hypothalamic gonadal problem. Um, You should still be producing the same sort of testosterone on a consistent basis. However, we should probably say that it will be declining over the years. Yeah. Which ultimately would would affect performance. Mm -hmm. So let's try and summarize it. Average male is going to be anywhere on a scale between eight and twenty-nine. Maybe perhaps an average twenty to you know twenty-four-year-old male might be, let's say, bang in the middle or slightly on the higher end of that scale. Now, unfortunately for me, I'm on the op- you know I'm on the opposite side of uh, of of youth. Um, if I was natural, uh, I'd be starting to decline. I'd be starting to, and so would you, because although I look a bit younger than you, you're actually same age. Um, I'd be starting to decline in my ability to, you know, recover as well, would, you know, as, as I do now, would be compromised. So then that's where I suppose the, the guys comes of kind of going on, whether it's TRT or going on cycle. What, what's your thoughts on all that? Well, yeah, you will see that. But I think also what you've got to look at is that for the majority of people, apart from the like elite like outliers at the top, you've got to take into consideration of all the other factors again. So like if someone's in their 40s and they start training with you, yes, they may, um, their natural test may be dipping, but you've probably found that their consistency in training and their consistency in diet's not been good. So you'll always see, you will see results changing unless you are, as I said, someone who's been consistent for 20 years and you are top of your game. Um, all those factors will be, like something that you wouldn't really need to take into account too much. Unless you're someone, by the way, who gets your blood work done and your test is like absolutely bottomed out, yeah. then that's going to make it very difficult for performance, et cetera. I think, I think as well, like as a coach, you just kind of like, I mean, you maybe get, you've maybe seen this before. I've seen it a few times, like a client will send me um, their sort of before photographs 
and then they'll mention to me that they're, you know, they're, they're coming on board because they, they want to start using anabolics and they want some sort of, you know, advice about that. And I'm like, right, cool. Let's get your, let's check your test. And before we even check it, I look at their photos and I'm just like, I bet this is rock bottom. I bet this is just super rock bottom. Just, just looking at them, having known their sort their sort of training age and whatnot. And then it comes back and it's like six. So if you think back to, you know, if you listen to this, I said this is a scale eight to, eight to 29. They're at six, they're below that scale. So that would actually qualify them for, uh, you know, hormone replacement therapy, TRT um, from the NHS, effectively, because they're below normal levels. Um, and then just what I find incredible is those sort of individuals, when they go on cycle, and let's say they go from six to like 50, right? And if you're thinking, what well, is a big increase, well, we take anabolic, so that happens. We go far out with that range. It's incredible the change in their physique, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and not just physique, and and their um, energy levels, sleep, um, everything like that. Mood will all be improved. So, yeah, that's not often spoken about, isn't it? It's often yeah. like, kind of just sh- you know, guys were so focused on the strength and how we look, when just the benefit of how you feel, perhaps. You know, it improves your relationship with your partner, a bit more confident, um, increased libido, et cetera, et cetera. So those sort of things can be really pivotal um, in a relationship or, or whatnot. And I guess if, if a guy has been, like, if, I've seen someone's blood work and it's at six. I'm like, fuck, where you were five, six years ago was still crap. <laughs> so I'm like, you must have just mm-hmm. been feeling And then they'll come and say to you within a few weeks, they're like, this is life-changing. And you're just like, yeah. well, it's not, it's just, it's just science. Anyway, I feel that we're kind of going a bit off topic here, um, a bit on a, a bit of a tangent. Um, next question: um, training volume for different genders. We we kind of uh, we kind of covered that, but I mean, I guess you could kind of go into detail because they're asking about. Um, I guess you could summarize that and say just you know lower body volume across the week, and would there be sort of a generic volume you'd prescribe, whether it was for you know, hip flexion, knee flexion. I mean, I know that it's very individualized, but to answer that question, to give someone a, a ballpark of where to go, do you want to you go ahead and answer that? Yeah, so what I would look at, like say, say it was a new client starting that had a, a decent ability to train, what I would look at from the get-go would be what their training was previously, how they were recovering, and then I would look at their physique. So if you look at someone and, for example, say, was that for females, sorry, the question? Um, it just is for, for different genders. So yeah, you can answer both, yeah. But, right, so say, for example, I have a guy come on, he's got pretty stacked quads, but his posterior area isn't as good, Well, we're going to probably bias more hinge movements, or not just hinge movements, because obviously we know we have to do um, isolation stuff as well, but probably going to bias that more. Um, and the same with females, it would be exactly looking at, we are always trying to improve the physique all round. So... You don't just keep hitting the areas that are good, super super hard, or you don't hit them more and more. You want to bring up the weaker areas. With the sort of volume and things like that, that can be very tricky. And the reason I say that is Vaughn spoke about it earlier, but like I chain legs once a week. I have chained them previously twice, but when I chain legs once a week, it fries my central nervous system. Well, it's twice a week. Oh, yeah, twi- yeah, twice. I do a hip thrust and a hinge movement on my posterior day. But but you have to look into how much people can actually recover from. Um, so that would be very base, based on that. So a lot of guys can do two sessions a week. Um, they might find that um, you're doing more of a, a quad-based or a quad-based uh, movements at the start and then the later in the week's more hinge-based. Um, but you have to really, really get feedback from people because... If they aren't recovering from it, they're not going to grow. Um, if they're not recovering from it, from it in a dieting phase, it's going to be even worse because you're going to be absolutely smashed. So, for example, I do one hinge-based movement a week anymore, and I can't recover from it. Has my back grown a lot? Yes, because you can have a look at the post I'm putting up this Sunday, which will be far back when you see this. But the, the main factors are looking at the person, looking at how much they're growing as well. So if you look at someone's in a gaining phase, you've biased their quads and they're not getting bigger, you know that you either need to improve execution or increase volume. Don't increase volume first, by the way, because if they're moving not very well, more volume's not going to make that muscle grow. 
So <laughs> I, th I think that the big factor when you assess that at the start would just be, what's someone doing previously? Is it working? What is their volume? Don't go from zero to 100 because it's not going to be effective. They might the first two weeks go, oh, this is brilliant. But they're not going to say that in eight weeks when nothing's progressing. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think all solid points, nothing I would really add to it apart from uh, if, like, I think it was last year, I posted a video on, um, this was for females in regards to posterior training, specifically glutes and hamstrings, and their delt training, medial delt training. And I said what I had found. Now, what you want you to do is, if you're listening to this, bear in mind that I, me and Ali will work with a lot of bikini girls or girls that perhaps just want to look like bikini girls but not actually compete um, who train legs three times a week and I had sort of said that, that females could vary between say 18, 20 to up to 26 sets for glutes and hamstrings across, across three sessions mm -hmm. now if I did that I, there's no way I, I would recover or, or you but what we've just seen in practice is that it's not necessarily a one size fits all because that between 18 and 26 is a big variation. But um, what I've tend to find is start low, like you said, and then just every now and then, if we're trying to push a little bit more and we're trying to get more of a response, we could have maybe like a slight adapter, you know, we could increase the sets by two across the week. And, and I did that with, um, remember with Clara, she originally was only on two full leg days and then one lower body movement on a third day. And then that got up to, now this is over the course of like a year and a half, it got up to two movements, then three, then four. And then all of a sudden, because all those four movements were two sets, and all of a sudden the first exercise went to three sets. Then the second exercise went to three sets. You know, but, but that process was literally over like a year and a half. And it was just me seeing, like, right, right, Clara, let's see where where your recoverable volume is. Like, I'm like, how do you do you get much DOMS as a pectinic session? Like, no, I feel fine. I'm like, right, cool. Two more sets here. Gave it 12 weeks. Right, cool. Let's look at the visuals. Let's see that that sort of glute shot. Has it improved? Yeah, it has, right, cool. Okay. But in my head, I'm thinking, right, the severity of the goal, we need more tissue. Can we get a little bit more? Not more isn't always better. I'm sure there's an article on the website about that. But in this instance, when our calories were so high, it kind of was and we saw the response so I thought just giving a number would be quite good for that because it's quite generic and then but then that's not to say that a female couldn't couldn't grow off much less if they're not they're not a bodybuilder they're not a bikini girl you know for bikini girls their their delt volume or medial middle portion lateral delt whatever you want to call it I will program between 10 to 14 and 16 sets across the week you'll probably yeah. be similar as well so i just thought let's add in something that can give someone a baseline of what to start with and then and a thought process about where they can go from it sometimes you need to reduce volume if someone's not recovering i suppose but anyway that on you i was i was just going to say also you will find outliers that like for example i do five sets of quads per week when gyms are open like most people can't do five set squads but you've got to look at the fact that over the years I've done a lot more volume to get to where I am now so don't just there's no like don't try and do the same like idea for everyone yeah uh, people used to find it crazy when I uh, I would say that this was so prep last year um, I would do across the week three sets of hack two sets of smith squats two sets of quads and that was my quad volume for three, two or three years. And now it's six sets, maybe a bit more sometimes. Um, by that, I mean maybe like seven or eight, just because we're doing the same sort of day. But um, yeah, in general, it's amazing how much one body part needs fuck all. And then I look at my arms and I'm like, I'm fucking doing 20 odd sets a day and they're still, <laughs> they're, they're still not going. Um, but then again, I think that comes down to the fact that for you and me, we just saw a lot of value and fucking loved training legs. It was most like we loved the hack squat. We loved just like stuff that involved the quads, didn't we? Yeah. And we hated arm stuff. So how we trained was similar. We did it for years. And it's why we both got decent quads and shit arms. 
<laughs> yeah, and you'll see you'll see a lot of guys who have the opposite. So yeah, which yeah, I would say that I would much prefer it this way than the other way. Yeah. Right. Cool. We're getting on now, but last question I think before we'll we'll wrap up uh, again. This is one that's um, super technical, um, probably not needed, but we'll we'll go through it. Um, it's asking about uh, understanding movements that are associated to someone size of someone's rib, rib cage during the breathing cycle, how that structure could perhaps affect uh, a movement power such as like a bench press or, or whatnot, you know, when's the best place to breathe? So, I mean, I don't know if, did you go first or did I go first last time? Uh, you? Think, you, know, you, on, on, you go first then, I'll, I'll jump in after. I would say with this again, it's one of those where, don't get me wrong, there is nothing wrong with the question. It's technical, it's good. For most people, you're not going to have to worry about it because uh, speaking about rib cages, things like that, like certain movements, your rib cage should be in a position. But for most people, that's going to make it very complicated for them to actually hold a position. Because if you're getting someone to do it, for example, a, a lap pull down, and you're speaking about their rib cage, they're then focused on their rib cage. They're not focused on their lats. So I think... Don't look at that too much in depth. Obviously, we know that it will fall into stuff. For anyone who, obviously, if you just think about your rib cage is around where your core would be, basically. So that's why positioning of it could affect the movement. Yeah. The, the only thing I would say that maybe we would, it, would, it would affect would be, let's say you're training. Um, here's a good example. that you, You're training together. Um, if you and me were doing a... Smith incline press, right? Or let's say it's with you, I'm trying with Chris. Like our sort of rib, rib cage, our, our limb lengths are going to be completely different. Now, if I'm reverse banding something and I've got a thicker rib cage than you do, then where the where I want the band to kick in is going to be a different point than where you do. So the one I, I tried to think of a situation in my head where this was applicable. So I guess the one situation if there was differentiating rib cage size between us we would need to change the band position of when it kicked in mm. only if our arm size was identical yeah. let's face it with longer levers that's going to change like the force angle the moment arm and whatnot and what we're doing so to put it in simple terms i think that the best thing to do especially if you're training alone or you're training with someone don't fucking worry about it. The, in regards to breathing, number one, just breathe and fucking get on with it. Don't hold, you know what I mean? Don't hold your breath for the whole set. But uh, where you breathe in the set, I think it's good to standardize it. I feel there's no right or wrong. There's effective or ineffective. So for me, um, you can give a different example of this, Ali. But for me, like on a hack squat, before I go down, I'll take a big old breath in and I hold. And it's more like a, a sort of like trying to increase pressure internally and, you know, abdominals, whatnot, and try to create like a solid mass of, I hate the word core, but I'm going to say it in my core, um, just to give me a bit more stability. And then once I push through the sticking point, that's when I'll breathe out. Now, the breath out's not like a, it's usually a noise that I can't really control, but that's maybe perhaps a breathing cycle. Um when you're going through any sort of eccentric movement, you might have a breath hold, concentric. Once you pass the sticking point, it might be a breath out repeat. What do you think? Yeah, well, it's exactly the same way I would do. I would say that if you've ever trained with anyone who used to either be very high level athlete or like they danced or they've done yoga, you will notice their ability to control their breathing a lot better, which is very useful. I think something I definitely see, especially with hinge-based movements is, and you'll see it a lot, clients are like, oh, my lower back's getting smashed here. And I find a lot of the time it's because as they're going through the movement, say they hit three reps, they get into the fourth one, they just lose all ability to brace. Yeah. So bracing through, I think, obviously, we don't go into breathing too often when we're speaking about it. But if you watch me and Vaughn train, it's just naturally there. And actually learning how to breathe as you're doing movements is going to be very beneficial. Because remember, you need to breathe anyway. So I think I, I, exactly what you said on the hack squat there, you're almost breathing in as you're getting ready. And then as you're driving back out, you're breathing out. 
and just that system, it's the same on when we're doing a hinge-based movement. I am literally trying to use my breath to keep tight, but also to drive through reps. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that was all questions. Any Anything else, um, I'm sure you'll cover it in the webinar. Um, if yeah. anyone's wondering what we mean by that, um, if you are part of Beauty Physique, um, you get access to a private webinar um, from one of the coaches every single week where you can ask us anything. So um, perhaps something that you don't want answered on a podcast. Although we will, we will both answer any question a client asks us via voice note or, or WhatsApp. But good addition. And it's been a it's been a pretty epic addition this lockdown um, in regards to support. I guess a, a sort of final thing to end on, uh, we could call it Ali's final thoughts, um, would just be, you know, People have heard advice from me about lockdown. People have heard advice um, from Clara, but you you say things in different words. Um, so anyone out there, lockdown, struggling, what would Ali's advice be to them? So I think one of the big factors that I've certainly spoke to clients about or just in general I've seen is, and I'm not going to say the usual, just get on with it, because I think although that is true, obviously we know it's a very difficult situation. But the way I would look at it is this. If you're struggling and stuff's going on and it is a bit of a slug, your routine is going to make that better. But also, when it comes to gyms opening, let's say they open in two months, how pissed off are you going to be if you look back and you go, do you know what? I could have been doing something there and I could have been in a better position, but I just let it slip. Um, Because if your end goal is to have a physique you're proud of, I say this all the time, like, you don't really get to just pick and choose when you do it. So lockdown um, is not fun. If you're training at home, you've got limited equipment. Look, it's not the same as going to the gym and chucking loads of weight about, but it can still be effective towards your goals. So you need to really weigh up. Am I, is me just sticking to the plan here and just doing what I need to do? Yes, I might not be enjoying it as much as I would when I go in the gym, but I'm going to be moving forward. You don't want to be, whenever you're trying to achieve goals, whether that's in business, body, mind, whatever, you want to be making sure you're taking steps forward every day. So with that, you've got your plan there. And if you don't, get your plan and just literally make sure that your non-negotiables are doing what you need to do. I'm not saying you enjoy it every time if you've got limited equipment. Some workouts will not be fun, but it'll be way more fun than not doing anything than when the gym's open and you're really pissed off that you've let progress slip and you're not in the position you want to be. So that would be my advice. Just not get on with it, but just focus on what your goals are and what you need to do to achieve them. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, I actually, there, there was one other question I totally forgot to, to say. It was regarding Clem. Um, I actually did a podcast on that two or three episodes ago. Um, however, someone asked how to deal with the, uh, the side effects that they were experiencing, which was um, waking up in the night Bit more frequently and um, cramps. I'm just going to answer it real quick. Um, I did a um, podcast with Dr. Dean last year. He spoke about this, um, and it's where the, the answer comes from. Is Clem, as you'll know from listening to that podcast, is going to increase sympathetic drive, increase adrenaline production. It's why you're struggling to sleep. So you need something that is going to slow the release of adrenaline. For that, I would just go high dose magnesium pre-bed. So what you see in supplements such as sleep aids and one has 500 milligrams, I would go in excess of a 1,000 to 1,500. For anyone that struggles with transomnia, I would go to 2,000, 2,500. Um, so that should sort that out in regards to sleep. The, shake, uh, the, the cramps, I would say uh, you've got to look at your potassium and probably salt intake as well. Um, and you're probably going to need to bump that up to try and offset the cramps. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. So i I done that post-dieting. I just basically had to uh, get my potassium and sodium in a good level. And then it worked from there. I would also say for anyone who likes to go to Ibiza and party too much, Vaughn's just said something about magnesium and cramping. I'll let you work out why, but it's very useful. So you don't wake up with a sore jaw. <laughs> <laughs> I've just stole that. I've just stole that from TM Cycles, by the way. And that's uh, and that's a good place to <laughs> to, to wrap it up. Uh, listen, if you, if you enjoyed this, if you 
If you want to hear more of uh, these sort of style episodes, please let us know. Um, please also let us know what questions you want. What we'll probably do um, is put more sort of uh, drop boxes on Instagram um, and just ask that because these were all sort of from from clients today. Um, but there had there was a few on that we just couldn't get to on Insta. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, let us know what you think. Um, and yeah, anything else to add, Ali? No, exactly that. If, if anyone's got any questions, just DM me on Instagram. I'll always get back to you. Um, the more people ask, the better, because it means I'll be covering or we'll be covering content that other people are probably thinking about as well. So, Yeah, wicked. As always, wherever you are, whatever you do, give it the beans.